0: You're listening to the Bottom Line podcast where those living with or beyond bowel cancer as well as health professionals involved in bowel cancer treatment and care share their inspirational stories and lived experiences with host and bowel cancer survivor, Stephanie. Anthony Ellison was three days shy of his 40th birthday when he was diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer. A fitness coach, Anthony's diagnosis came as a complete shock. However, three years later, And he continues to tackle the disease head on with the support of his family and his allied health team around him. Anthony, welcome. And can you briefly talk us through your initial diagnosis?
1: Sure. Thanks. uh, Thanks for the opportunity. I guess my story, I feel like it's turned into a saga now. I don't know (laughs) what what, what point it graduates from a story to a saga, but um, I think it's getting there. Look, I, I was I was diagnosed um, back in 2019. I presented to my GP with with some persistent diarrhoea, uh, and it was nothing more than that. I, I, as you said, I was you know fit and healthy and working in fitness, and didn't feel like too much was wrong. But other than you know just a, a sudden sort of and persistent change in bowel habits, it was enough for me to go to the GP and and just raise some some questions, which were initially. Um, I wouldn't say disregarded but sort of pushed aside to think that it, it's not too sinister we'll, we'll do some bloods and see what comes back and
0: you're too young was that mentioned
1: oh yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> you're fit and healthy and i mean cancer wasn't even on the radar like it really wasn't a chat and even from me um but after about another 10 days and 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 some growing concern um my wife's a Uh, in the medical game she's an emergency doctor as well so at this time we're like you know i think i I need a bit more further investigation so i did go back to the gp and um and at that point we we opted for a uh, fecal occult blood test which i went home and did the stool test and received those results within about two weeks and the doctor said to come back in and we we found three positive uh, results um, from your three samples. There is blood in your stool. I didn't, even doing that test, I didn't even see it. Um, I didn't think there was anything wrong. I just thought, you know, this is just a thorough examination, something I hadn't done before. And then we looked for a colonoscopy. Uh, we went to go through the public system, and this is back in July. Pre-COVID. Um, Pre-COVID. <laughs> Everything's
0: pre and post-COVID these yeah, days, yeah. isn't it? yeah.
1: And, and I was booked in for December 3rd. I'm like, oh, wow, well, five months. I'm not too pumped uh, about that timeline. So we, uh, we asked around and went through sort of the private system and was able to get one in about five weeks. Um, so it took me into September. And then at the end of the colonoscopy, I was met in recovery, which is a very common story I'm hearing from a lot of survivors and uh, the colorectal surgeon said, "Look, we've found a mass uh, at the end of your, your sigmoid colon, so down towards the recto-sigmoid junction. Uh, we'd like to send you down for a CT immediately. We've called your wife. Uh, we just want to have a, a little bit of a deeper look." And I was still a bit foggy at that at that time, probably taking in,
0: probably wanting to look forward to the sandwich, not to have a yeah a scan.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so we were just sent back downstairs, and I just waited with my wife and. Not much was said. It was a bit of silence. And then three days later, we got the call to come in and we sat in, yeah, two days before turning 40 to be told I had stage four uh, bowel cancer that had spread very badly to my liver. I had more than 20 metastases in both sides of my liver and I was to start palliative chemotherapy very quickly. So hopefully within the next couple of weeks, I had a port inserted in a week's time and then within, yeah, that two week time frame, early November. In 2019, I started my um, my chemotherapy path, which initially was, um, yeah, it was touted as palliative, and I didn't really understand what palliative chemotherapy was at that time, and I just understood palliative to be preparing for death. In my head, that's what I, I sat there and listened, uh, and I was teaching at the time um, and got the call uh, to be told that in the middle of an, an anatomy. Oh, you're kidding.
0: We talk often, sorry to interrupt you, Anthony, but I'm a comms professional and the way the communication and how you're communicated and language is so important.
1: I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse because it really, I literally had to walk out of the classroom to take this phone call uh, and then walk back in with a, a group of 25 budding personal trainers and 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 finish off the lesson and then rang my wife at lunch to understand what, am I, what does this mean? And, um I mean, yeah, it, that, that was harrowing, um, the the immediate emotion there and then having to sit in the office and and just, you know, process that and it was really grounding. My parents were up at the time. I don't know whether they sensed something was was going on, but they came up from Sydney to, to look after my daughter that afternoon and I had to go back and drop the news to them and... You know, pick my daughter up from she was three three at the time, and pick her up from daycare, and and bring her back, and you feel like your world's collapsed, and that that, that those immediate few days were really challenging, just full of fear and anger and embarrassment.
0: We just spoke about about shame off off camera because we've had Wayne Schwoss on and he talks about the shame element yeah. with his mental health. Yep, we shouldn't feel shame, but we still do.
1: As Wayne mentioned, like bowel cancer to me was always an old person's disease. And I had that, like it was never ever on the radar. And then to be told, you know, to be thrown into this one month of, you know, talking, talking about poo and talking about your bowel habits and, um, and your rectum and all of these things that are kind of taboo topics. In I mean, even with your wife and your family, they're kind of topics that you don't delve into. Uh, not until your parents and you talk about your kids, you know, your, your baby poos and those sort of things. That's
0: I often say. Why do we stop? You know, even my thirteen-year-old son still a fart and poo. Yeah. It's the funniest thing. We have moved on, moved on to dick and balls a bit, but you know, <laughs> yeah. But why do we stop talking about it?
1: I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I guess it's just that social. Um, it is. It's a social taboo, and I mean, everyone does it. Um, I've, I've become. Um, quite relaxed with, you know, talking about it. And I think you've got to, it. there's a certain point, particularly as a bowel cancer, uh, as a patient, you're constantly getting asked about, you know, how you're coping. Um, so I've had to become accustomed to it over the over the years. Mm.
0: So you talk about your young daughter and she was three. She would be about six by now, I would imagine.
1: She is. She turned seven in two months' time, yeah.
0: Wow, amazing. And your wife, and you talk about the anger, the fear, and also you've spoken publicly about the vulnerability how did you navigate then once the initial diagnosis set in how did you navigate the next few months emotionally
1: it all started with my my 40th birthday celebrations which i mean i sat in on that office and that consult with the colorectal surgeon on a tuesday and on friday uh, i had 40 of my best mates and their families. Um, down at a caravan park for a weekend to celebrate my fortieth, which I've been planning for you know almost nine months um, to get all happening. Obviously, before this all hit, um, so that was an incredibly emotional weekend. Really, it served a, it served a really good purpose, and and I was able to um, show vulnerability and. Um, I shed a lot of tears that weekend, and I had lots of group and one-on-one conversations. And I, re- I mean, I stood over my birthday cake in tears, um, blow out my candles in front of you know forty of the, cl- of the closest people in my life, and it just when I show that amount of vulnerability, what I got back fueled something within me which I've never tapped into before, and I've, I've I don't know whether it's the depth of relationships that I've got, they 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 delve deeper. And I was able to have conversations with mates and family that really you don't, you don't, you don't have. Like a lot of my conversations and my relationships are about footy and training and thinking and pubs and you know all that sort of fun stuff. And and you keep it above board. It's it becomes superficial over time and that's comfortable for people. And I guess you just get into those habits, but this, this really it, it took took me deep and it took my mates deep, and some mates had to detract from it. and And we had conversations saying, you know that I don't know what to say to you. <laughs> you know I don't any of my problems in my life now pale into insignificance with what you're dealing with. And having those conversations and knowing right, my mates are struggling with this news. You know and some went the other way and wanted to you know really help and, and go out of their way and check in multiple times um, throughout the week. And I don't know, I just I just remember driving back from that weekend and thinking, you know, I've got so many people in my in my corner and so much love and support. If I can tap into that regularly and feel like I've got a, a support network that's there to, to keep me buoyant in these, in these challenging times, I'm just going to empower myself emotionally and I'm going to empower myself with knowledge as best I can and turn up to, to chemotherapy day one and give it the best the best shot that I can. And, and that's how I got out of that initial funk. So those three days were horrible, that first meeting. But after that, I'm like, right, find what I can control. And I won't just control it, I'll dominate it. And then everything that's out of my control, I really ca- I can't do much about. So I've just got to keep turning up and, and giving it my best. And that was that was the approach I've taken. I've wavered. I mean, it sounds fantastic when I talk about it, but there's there's been moments where it's been too hard, and I've I've crumbled. But I've had people around me to to help me out.
0: And a cancer journey is paved with bumps and ups and downs unfortunately but it's so wonderful that you've got that support system around you but you talk about empowering yourself and you know you're obviously faced with quite a challenging diagnosis what have you done to make sure that your specialists are at the forefront of your treatment and where you're at now and how you're navigating that
1: yeah so i in regards to empowerment i I looked at it two ways and as a personal trainer we talk and we teach a lot about building an allied health and network around you and as a PT you should have physios and GPs that refer in and out and massage therapists so early on I'm like I need to to get my health literacy up I need to understand I've got a bit of a background I've I've done health science at university and obviously wife in in the medical game so I've got a, a leg up to start I can read research. I know how to read those type of things. So I'm like, I can empower myself, but I want to use professionals. So the exercise physiologist I went and saw very early on about talking about how I can tweak my exercise with my my actual situation and I presented, you know, very differently to what a, a stage 4 bowel cancer patient presented being fit and healthy and having a good, you know, active lifestyle and no no comorbidities I, I read into the recommendations that the EPs push and it didn't fit. I was I knew I was an outlier. So I wanted to speak to an EP and just get some understanding onto all right, I know that's what the research says, but what works for me, I need to do more than what that says. I went to a, an accredited practicing dietitian uh, very early on to talk about, right, what can I eat during chemotherapy to help um, with the mucositis and all these foods that I needed to, to tweak a fair bit um, in order for the chemo- me to cope as best I could and without losing too much weight to give me energy throughout the day so I can still be a dad and still be a husband and still, you know, um, contribute.
0: I think that's a really important point. We still want to live a normal life. We still have things that we want to do with our family and being able to do that is so important.
1: Yeah. My GP was very, initially my GP um, didn't last very long. I moved to another GP.
0: And that's okay. It's got to be right for you. You've got to all be on the same wavelength, don't you?
1: Yeah, exactly. And... And then shifting GPs, we we started up a, a, a mental health care plan. And from that, I went and saw a psychologist. I still see a, a psychologist uh, at varying times, high frequency at the moment, given my current um, current challenges, very high frequency early on. But in those moments of, of nil evidence and, and the moments of good, I can pull back on those things. But I just find having a psychologist session, it is 100% dedicated to you, and i feel like i i can't have those conversations with people that i care about because that's just loading them up it's a
0: burden you feel like you're burdening i could not agree with you more yeah it was the best thing i ever did was had a a psychologist
1: yeah i get so much out of those sessions and and it just gives you a couple things to work on and and you can't hide. I mean, I swear I lose a couple of kilos in tears every time I'm in there, but but it's, I mean, I know I walk out lighter and I feel like I've got some direction and I don't feel like I've burdened anyone um, other than my psychologist.
0: <laughs> but you're paying them, so that's okay. Yeah, yeah
1: that's it. Uh, but on top of that, I've, I've been to a physio um, throughout my, my journey. I've done 22 rounds of chemotherapy. I've had five major abdominal surgeries. So over the three years, I've done I've I've put my body through the ringer and I've just had to recall and and I've done reflexology. I've been to an um a naturopath. I've <laughs> I've I've done it all and and when I do that, I accumulate, that's where I get my empowerment from is, is is having knowledge so that when I sit in with oncologists and I sit in with liver surgeons, I'm not lost in translation. I can understand what they're talking about. And I ask good questions and I was. I was told early on by a, an oncologist mate who I lived next door to out in Orange. We lived out there for a couple of years. And he said straight up, he said, the best thing you can be is just be a pleasant squeaky wheel at your appointments. So come empowered, write down all your questions and just have questions to ask and just make sure that you deliver them as a, you know, a, a, in a pleasant, hmm. A pleasant
0: Respectful
1: manner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just be a good human mm. and, and ask, you know, ask good questions. And that's always stuck with me. And I've I've passed that on to many people um, when they've asked me about tips and tricks, just being that pleasant squeaky wheel in your in your appointments. And I don't know. I think if it makes sense if if your oncologist and your you know your medical team uh feel comfortable and feel A a sense of duty um, to you, I feel like they're going to go that little bit extra. And if everyone goes that little bit, one or 2% harder at it, that's when you can make some really big inroads.
0: Absolutely. You're always going to try harder for somebody who you genuinely have a connection with. But I think the Other really important point that you've touched on is that you can challenge and you can ask questions. Be that advocate, because I think that's also very important. Seek a second opinion if you're not happy. I wanna touch on your fitness aspect. You're a fitness coach teaching the personal trainer qualification as you've mentioned. So exercise is really important and is integral to your life before and post diagnosis. It's been well documented that exercise has a positive impact on cancer diagnosis and also can be preventative. Can you talk us through how exercise has impacted your diagnosis?
1: Again, as a part of my research, I was looking into exercise during infusion. Now, the, the, the hospital that I actually um, got my treatment at doesn't have a, a wellness center attached. I know there's some um, certainly down at Chris O'Brien in Sydney where they've got a gym, right next door to the chemo ward and they can wheel people in and they can do some arm ergometer or sit them on a recline bike and turn over while they're getting infused and that improves the delivery of the chemotherapy into the cells and for me i watched an insight program um, a couple of years back from rob newton um, who's an, an exercise physiologist over based over in perth phenomenal human putting huge amounts of effort and and awareness and research into exercise in the cancer space and he's doing amazing things, and I'm like, I want to bring that to, to for my treatment because that's important to me. So for my infusions on Fall Fox area, I brought in little floor pedal things that I could just sit at the end of my bed, and every hour I'd get out of bed and pop my feet in and turn my legs over for 10 minutes on every hour. Regardless of how I felt, it was a no-brainer. For me, I had to get up. I'd actually feel better after the 10 minutes than I did before, when I first started. And and I don't know if that was a a psychosomatic type thing, and, but whether there is that endorphin, I know the, you know, the beautiful endorphin release you get from from movement, certainly I've lived and breathed that. I got some strange looks from the nurses. Um, I had a couple of husbands come up to me and say, look, you've got me in strife with my wife now. Um, <laughs> gone and bought a little uh, um, floor pedal to, for their husbands to be active during their treatment. So I don't know. I felt, I felt again, right, fighting for control of something that I could do and, and I'd just sit in my little corner with my headphones in and turn my legs over and get back in the chair and continue and, yeah, it gave me it gave me yeah a sense of control. I also made a decision early on from on my fortieth birthday. I'd train every single day. I missed I missed two days, which I was kind of annoyed, mainly because I was in ICU. Oh, you
0: need to give yourself a break, Anthony. Yeah, I know. I, know.
1: <laughs> I missed two days in that in that whole year um, of doing some sort of formed or or um, or rehab driven exercise. So. You know, super proud of of finding that. Uh, I probably got more mental benefit than I did physical. Um, my, my aim was to every fortnight turn up in the same physical shape. So I'm trying to undo what that chemo had bashed out of me in those 48 hours of infusion. I didn't want to lose too much weight because if the weight goes down, the amount of chemo goes down. So I, I wanted to maintain weight. I wanted to keep my lean muscle mass up. Um, I wanted to be mobile because um, that's important for surgeries in the perioperative setting, in the in the pre-op but also post-op. I needed core strength. I needed lung capacity. All of these things I needed to keep improving to give me the best chance to recover and, again, go back to being a, being a dad and being a husband. Um, so, yeah, exercise is, is Crucial. I'm so glad I've, I've I've had an active lifestyle. I've never really understood what I was training for until I got diagnosed. Now I know why I was what what I've been training for my whole life has been this this challenge. And it's um, I'm grateful. I don't know if it's 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 played a huge part, but I know it's played a minor part of of the the fact that it's three years on from a terminal diagnosis that they didn't give me much chance. Um, and I'm still fighting.
0: And it's given you that sense of purpose as well, as you've touched on, you know, that that mental aspect is so very, very important. We talk about that positive approach. That's very important as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, it's my happy place. I actually enjoy exercise. I know it sounds weird for a lot of people that don't, that battle with that relationship with exercise. For me, yeah. I, yeah, I think it's everyone. To be honest, you, you go up and down and, and, and motivation and drive and those type of things will wax and wane. And, and it doesn't matter how fit you are. Elite athletes go through it as well. My, my drive and I guess my tip is the feeling that I get when I finish working out is way more powerful than the one that, that tries to stop me not working out so yeah i just i I have visions towards the end and go i can't wait until this is over and i just keep pushing through and i've created an online sort of network and i use my instagram and my facebook to to publicly get accountability because accountability is important for me as with any pt or anyone looking for goals being publicly accountable um to someone could it be one person for me I shouted it out to my supportive network and said, these are my aims for this month and this is what I want to achieve. Hold me accountable. Make sure that I'm turning up. If you haven't seen me post or if you're not seeing me down at the gym, flick me a message. And I don't know, It's that's that's how I've used my supportive network to get me there.
0: And bravo to you, I think, you know, your energy is absolutely inspiring. And I know when we chat on the movement, I just feel your energy come through the screen. And I think that that's so very important for our listeners to know that there's somebody else out there who's been there and done that and has got advice and got your back as well. You may not know them, but there is support there if you need. And I think that's really, really important. Were there any other wholesale changes that you made? You talk about diet. Is there anything there you wanted
1: to chat about? Yeah, diet was really hard because it, it kind of all started in November. So I was probably two or three treatments in and I went down and saw an integrative oncologist at, at Chris O'Brien who looks at, she's oncology trained, but also looks at every everything else, exercise included, medicinal cannabis supplementation, diet, reflexology, acupuncture, like all of those sort of...
0: Because it's such a dynamic area. It's changing yeah. from week to week, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And that was the one the one medical professional appointment that I'd had in that four or five months that I'd sat in. And I remember walking out, I had to walk a couple of blocks to go and see my mum and dad. And I'd actually felt buoyant walking out. And I'm like, you know what? This is... I feel like I've got some things, some extra tools that I can work on. And one of them was, she said, you've created a, an internal ecosystem or an environment internal that has allowed the cancer to thrive. Your cancer is really happy. doesn't matter how healthy you've been previously and what you've been eating and doing all those things, your cancer's thriving at the moment in your body. So you need to shock it and make some wholesale changes to your body and that can start with diet. So, alcohol went out the window as soon as I was diagnosed. I didn't touch a drop for 365 days. I got to my 41st birthday. I was declared nil evidence, and I had a schooner of beer, which was delicious, <laughs> and, a sausage, <laughs> and a sausage roll, which is even better. <laughs> but I, I mean, I went, uh, I went liver focused, sort of. You know, fermented foods, uh, I, no processed sugar soft drink went out the window, uh, fruit juice went out the window. I was basically just having water, massive reduction in red meat consumption and processed meat in particular. So the hams, the bacons, sausages, yeah, cured meats, those type of things went completely out the window because we know there's a strong link there. Um, but it was all driven by this meeting with the oncologist in, in line with the, the, the dietitian as well and the advice that they were given. And um, you know, I went I went down to the organic markets each week and, and bought my uh, my fresh produce, spent a fortune down there, but I realized I wasn't buying a slab of beer, I wasn't buying meat anymore. So um my wife and my daughter, you know, jumped on board and we went borderline vegetarian, I guess sort of almost like a pescatarian, sort of a fish-eating vegetarian.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's kind of what we settled on. And that worked. I mean, that worked for me. It was change. Uh, obviously, it got me to surgery. I had a liver resection. I had a, a six-month period there um, where I was nil evidence. And then it came back in the liver. I had another second liver resection. And then I had nine months of, of nil evidence. And then most recently, it's it's back again. But I mean, it's I knew it was always going to be a roller coaster. And the diet has changed. Obviously, when you have your bowel... I had 30 centimetres of my bowel removed, and and that that recovery took a while. I had to, you know, change my fibre and understand soluble and insoluble fibres, and what do I need to tweak? What do I need to have more and less of? I used the bowel care nutritionist from Bowel Care to Australia. Isn't on she fabulous, time. Teresa? <laughs> Amazing.
0: Yeah,
1: and just just being able to send an email and just get something back really quickly um, from someone who lives and breathes it. Um, yeah, uh, uh, nutrition's so hard. It's such a
0: It's hard for bowel cancer patients too, I think, and I'm no expert, but you're struggling sometimes you might be struggling with a bag like i had an an ileostomy bag so that that dictates what your diet can be then you've got cancer or you know you're going through chemotherapy there's a whole range of areas it's a little more complex for bowel cancer patients isn't it when it comes to diet and then you need protein (laughs) so so it's finding all that protein but you can't have a heap of beans because that'll make you poo so
1: yeah the the protein's a real challenge and as a part of my first liver surgery is they they took my gallbladder just purely because of the location of it so the gallbladder is there to store bile which breaks down fat so for me trying to maintain weight and Keep good healthy fats in there, but I don't have the ability to break it down very well or as good as a, a normal system would. It's just a constant, a constant battle and, and um, you know, spending bouts of in between diarrhea and constipation and everything in between that spectrum. I've wrestled control of it at the moment, that change in a week when I'm due to restart chemotherapy, but it's just. It's, yeah, it is really, really challenging. And I'm, I'm lucky I understand, I teach nutrition and anatomy and I understand the digestive system. But for people that don't have that health literacy, I can only understand the, the just the nuance and the, and the minefield that is nutrition um, in that space.
0: And reach out to people. I think that's the, you're entitled to a healthcare plan <laughs> and there are resources there to reach out. Don't battle that on your own, I think is a, is a really good tip.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's too hard to do alone. I've learned that emotionally and even yeah, most, most recently being able to get you know, important people that live and breathe it every day, getting their opinions and taking that on board is, is crucial.
0: Anthony, finally, I always ask our guests to give me three things they'd like listeners to take away from mm. uh, today's podcast. So what would your three be?
1: I think expanding someone's health literacy is very important, even if you're starting from base level, is to find ways to empower yourself with knowledge. Because if you don't understand your treatment, and I've seen this in the movement group and the conversations and people that don't have understanding on what their mutation is, they don't understand where their bowel cancer is located. They, they don't understand what chemotherapy drugs are within their protocol. I think those key things are really, really important for a patient to know, because when you have that limited time with a specialist, you want to have all your ships in a row and, and be ready to, to ask the right questions. So um, expanding your health literacy is, is really crucial. Building a supportive network uh, around you, um, and that'll start with family and friends and know that everyone deals with it differently. I've, I've got people for certain situations. is the way that I sort of describe it. If I need a, a full escapism, I've got mates that can deal with that. If I need a, a, a shoulder to cry on, I've got family to call on. You know, I've got, I've got, I've created that, um, and I'm lucky to be. Well, unlucky to live. Geographically, we're, we're located a fair way from my family, based in Newcastle. But you know, most of my family's in Sydney. My wife's family's spread all over the country. So localized help is really challenging, but we've got that sort of ability for them to drop things and come and help us when needed. So yeah, definitely building that supportive network emotionally around your friends, but also professionally using that that network of people around you, and be the pleasant squeaky wheel, which probably encompasses everything. Be happy, be a good human as hard as it can be from time to time when you don't feel like being the best patient. I think you know being kind to your nurses because they can take you through to some painful places, um, removing, um, you know, abdominal drains and you know, they're, 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 they have to sit through all the, a lot of challenging things. So I guess, yeah, be the pleasant squeaky wheel through the process and, and it gets returned back to you.
0: Anthony, thank you so much for sharing your story on the Bottom Line podcast. By sharing your wisdom and your learnings, you are helping so many people who are going through bowel cancer. But this is also something that I think is really relevant for others who might be going through different cancers. Your determination, your vulnerability and your positivity are a true inspiration. So thank you so much for chatting to us today on The Bottom Line Podcast.
1: Thanks for the time, Steph. Cheers.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Bottom Line podcast. To find out more about bowel cancer or for support or simply to donate, please go to bowelcanceraustralia.org.